0: For those of you who are new to this class, uh, it's, a, it's recorded, so you don't have to take notes unless you want to. The audio tapes, we just put archives somewhere and the, the video tapes and the audio tapes are available. So, we're doing Art as a Hidden Message, a Guide to Self-Realization, which is uh, Swami Kriyananda's book, very interesting title. Um, how many of you have not read any of the book yet? Okay. So, how many of you have read at least the first four chapters? Okay. So I can't assume that everybody has. That's all right. I, didn't, I was saying to someone, nobody ever reads for the first class. That you're sort of like me. Oh, my God, it's starting. Okay. No, I understand that. That doesn't mean that people actually do it. I didn't say they weren't informed. I said they didn't respond. <laughs> um, okay. I was reflecting on... Um, Years ago, Swamiji was writing some book. I don't remember even which one it was. But he remarked that that he had um, always, to a certain extent, not paid attention to what he would have called Master's Personality, considering that his personality wasn't really the essence of who he was. But then he realized as he got more um, deeper into the teachings and more subtle, he realized that even the Master's personalities are chosen because they have a lot to teach us and there's really no aspect of the guru's life that you can with impunity simply disregard because all of it has to do with the um, the kind of ray that is coming forth and now of course not every disciple um, uh, entirely reflects uh, every aspect of their guru's teachings Paramhansa Yogananda himself was of a very devotional temperament, and yet his guru Sri Yukteswar was very much of a jnani. And, but still, his devotional temperament was inspired by his very uh, wisdom-oriented guru, because his guru awoke within him his own nature. But in the case of our line, in the case of creative work and so on, there's, there's more spiritual purpose going on here, I think, in a, in a larger scale. That doesn't mean that all of us, you know, have to go out and take up ceramics or something if we don't have an art form, but the, the concept of creativity and of artistic expression and refined artistic expression is really actually very fundamental to this whole mission. And Swami himself has been working on this thought. Um, these thoughts first occurred to him when he was 18 years old. The, the first version of this book was a paper he wrote when he was in college and it it came to him in an intuitive flash that greatness in art had to do with consciousness, which he defined as the quality of light that emanated from a work of art. And this was a a revelation he had that was not intellectual, it was just a a knowingness, which he then turned into a paper for college, and he got an F, because the, the, the teacher just couldn't make any sense out of him saying that the light that emerges from Chaucer is a little muddier than the light that comes from what Homer writes. I mean, the doctor just, the uh, professor just thought he was nuts. But Swamiji knew he wasn't. He knew he was right. And he rewrote this book, I think this is the fourth time. It came out uh, several times as a small pamphlet. And then, finally it was called Meaning in the Arts at the beginning. And then... uh, The Artist as a Channel, it came out in that form at one point. I think it came out twice as a pamphlet, then The Artist as a Channel, and then finally this one, and this is probably the last time. But each time, he found the ideas were so subtle that he had to keep working at them again. Well, coming back to what I was talking about before, just about how creativity and creative art plays into our path, um, we have to... Master's mission is so vast and there's so many dimensions of it that are um, just embryos at this time. You just can, you can just. There's hardly anything more than little, uh, even little tag in the ground where the seed is planted. It hasn't really sprouted or come up yet, and it will take generations of attuned devotees before it all begins to come out. But one of the fundamental characteristics of Master was that he was such an artist. He was a musician. He was a singer. He was a composer. He was a poet. He was a writer. Um, I never heard anyone speak of him being a dancer, but undoubtedly he was also that if he ever put his mind to it. He was an athlete, and therefore he had mastery over his body. Um, I don't know he painted when he chose to. There's this story of the portrait of Lahiri Mahashaya that he wasn't satisfied with, and that he took a week and simply attuned himself to painting and made himself into a painter, better even than the artist uh, himself who, had, he, who he was replacing. The artist was... Um, Gracious enough to admit that the painting that Yogananda had done in one week was a better painting. Now, part of it is just, um, I mean, there's many lessons to it. Not the least of which is what Master says, that if we attune ourselves, anything is possible. And Swami has the example in here of Master being asked the question, if the creative impulse can be under the power of your will. And he said, yes, take down this poem. And then he just turned and dictated a poem that later appeared in Whispers, that was singled out by the reviewer out of all those hundreds of poems is one of the most beautiful ones in there. And Master just wrote it with that kind of attunement. So we have an example um, in Master's life of, of the process of attunement as expressed through art. But as Swami describes in his book too, you know, every subject has its art, whether you're a businessman or a parent or a cook or whatever you're doing or a clerk in a store. There's always the, the technique, the science, and then there's always the art. And the art comes from inspiration, and the process of gathering inspiration is the same, really, for a mathematician as it is for a dancer. It's becoming in tune with that you're trying, which you're trying to channel. And the source is always the same. That's why often people who are talented in one area can become talented very easily in another area, because they've fundamentally understood the art of concentration and channeling inspiration. Now another feature of, I mean, one other aspect of this, is that one of the many things that Master came to bring was to restore to individuals um, the responsibility for their own spiritual development. Of course, that's why he called it self-realization, which is an um, an obvious reference to the fact that it has to do with our inner selves. And even though He started an institution. His own way of approaching it uh, was always very much that it was just about you and God. And he would say, it doesn't really do you any good to live here, and as he put it to the monks so sweetly, he said, you must individually make love to God. It's not enough merely to go through it mechanically or to put your names on the rolls, and he often made great fun of anybody's institutional ideas of religion. He didn't know Garrison Keillor, but you know I love that remark of Garrison Keillor saying that um, to think that you can become a Christian by sitting in church is thinking that like thinking you can become an automobile by sitting in the garage. And <laughs> Master would have appreciated such a comment because that's exactly how he felt about it. And he made a great distinction between churchianity and Christianity. Christianity was about the soul and God. Churchianity was about these institutions that had been built. Now, part of that... Um, abil- uh, ability and willingness to really have your own relationship with God has to do with attunement and what follows from attunement is personal creativity because it, the, the emphasis on the individual is emphasizing that unique nature which each of us have that none of us can or should be um, defined merely by somebody's external definition of it everybody has to be defined entirely and only by that unique connection that they have with the spirit. And in this sense, um, he, he, he wasn't traditional in his demanding of obedience. The, the monastery that he founded has since fallen into um, the, the most traditional kind of, um, any kind of self-expression is ego kind of attitude. But that was not at all the way Master himself was. And the model that Swamiji has set up for Ananda is much uh, more true what master's true teaching is and that is simply that it's up to the individual and, and there is no even though we have a monastic order we, we ask for cooperative obedience and there has to be some sense of allegiance to um, higher spiritual authority but nonetheless it's, it's, it's through cooperation not through the uh, um, submergence or the suppression of your own willpower now, all of that, of course, is, 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 is an essential reality for any kind of artistic expression that is more than just mechanical. And so that is the context in which Swamiji drops this book. And interestingly, you know, so many of the things that happened to Swamiji in the years before he met Master were really picking up from the ether the the vibrations and the ideas that Master was projecting, and Swami was making those own discoveries in order to um, prepare him, really, to be able to comprehend the autobiography of a yogi when he saw it, and be able to go to Master and just know immediately that you are my guru, because Swamiji had already done a great deal of this work, and even this simple understanding that art is about consciousness was just exactly what Master was teaching everywhere because what he was teaching is that everything is about consciousness. Now, the the premise of this book, which sometimes people find a little bit difficult to accept, but I don't think in this crowd we'll really have to argue about it too much, and Swami really addresses the issue very well. Swami says he's not really trying to tell other people what they can and can't do. He's not really saying, you know, you have no right to... Um, put up garish water pipes and call it art you know you have a perfect right to do it but he also has the right to say what he thinks about it and it's not like he's going around campaigning for what is allowed and what is not allowed but the the key that he's putting forward is in the subtitle of the book which is a guide to self-realization which is how are we people who are interested in expanding consciousness and interested in art how are we going to put these two elements together? And it's a very important question because nowadays um, art and artistic ego, there's, there's this great confusion that has developed and many individuals who are artistic um, also become very egoic about their art. And many art forms, I know some of you have uh, spoken to me about the professional artistic arenas that you've experienced and the... Um, the sheer unkindness of the ego competition that takes place, which is just antithetical to really, um, on a deeper level, why art exists at all. And yet, in the times that we're living in, there's so much confusion that just like all the other arenas of life that Master came to transform, there's also a project here to be done for those people who are artistically gifted and... You know, I know some of you are very gifted in the art forms that you've pursued, um, or the professions, or whatever, because everything is really an art form. And and part of what we're all trying to do is to understand how to be more perfect channels, both for the sake of what we can do to help the world, and also to help um, lay the groundwork for how this is supposed to be done. Now, we don't want to sort of go into it with that kind of pride, because whenever you start doing something to teach others... It's it's usually a bad experience. But if you do it because it's right, and because it's right for you, the side effect of that will also be that it will be uplifting for the world. I love the part in here, which comes a little later in this book, where Swami speaks of, if you do art, if you create art that really pulls down people's consciousness, you get the karma of pulling them down. And that's not necessarily something that you want to have. It was a very interesting sort of oblique way to try to influence people not to be so hideous in their self-expression even though he's trying very hard to be neutral through this okay now are there any comments or thoughts or questions before I go on? it's very nice that this book begins with the um, introduction by um, Derek Bell of course he's passed away now It's also fun to read that introduction because Derek Bell, for those of you who ever had the chance to meet him, he was a harpist for the Chieftains. He was really a symphony musician, but he somehow found himself in that popular band for 25 or 30 years of his life. He was a very um, unusual character. And the introduction sort of has all that unusualness. He just kind of goes from point to point, but ends up speaking emphatically about the tremendous need, he sees, for what... uh, Donald Walters, Kriyananda, has written here about art. I was just, this is completely on the sideline, but um, when the chieftains began to get very popular, various popular musicians tried to hook up with them, and they did a number of albums with well-known people. I think some with the Beatles, some of the Beatles, like George Harrison, and also with the Rolling Stones at one point. And without meaning to be unkind or just to be name-dropping, Derek Bell remarked about the Rolling Stones, that they were just wild lads who didn't know how to do anything but make noise. He said, so we just shut them up in the studio and let them do what they wanted to do. (laughs) (laughs) Derek was a consummate musician, and he just couldn't relate to just the cacophony that that these people put out as music. And of course, they, they sort of stuck something together, and it was wildly popular just because of the names. But Derek just couldn't understand how these people could actually call themselves musicians. It was sort of his equivalent of Swami's relationship to the pipes in the shopping center in Kauai. For those of you who haven't read it all, that Swami starts this book by talking about this sculpture in this little shopping center on the island of Kauai, which he visited several times over a number of years. And he kept thinking that it was a sewer system that they hadn't quite finished. And finally he asked one of the clerks there, When are they ever going to finish this sewer system? And he found out that it wasn't a sewer system at all. It was art. (laughs) It was just pipes, hideous pipes. Swami describes in many different ways. You can see what enormous satisfaction it gives him to to give pages and pages to how unspeakably ugly these pipes were, how inappropriate, how meaningless, how everything that art isn't because they epitomize it. We were in, in, um, in Rome, actually, and we were staying... We're about to fly it to America and we stayed in some hotel next to some beautiful park and the park was based... It had been somebody's lavish estate and had been turned into a public park and it was extremely classical, old-fashioned, long walkways with trees planted in a huge mansion and then right in the middle was this gigantic piece of twisted red plastic. You know, gigantic, like 10, 12 feet. The same sort of thing, like we're going to modernize this place and just put right in the middle, and you'd, you know, you'd see it from all the different walkways, and it it was just painful to see it, because it just had, it, it was so, it just so reeked of somebody's ego. You know, the only possible reason to put something like that in such a place is if you have no consciousness of where you are or what you're doing, that it's just yourself and you're going to put it there. But Swamiji writes about how sort of enormously confused people have become about what we're doing artistically. Although at the same time he also adds that, you know, we are expressing the um, consciousness of our times. So he starts with this very simple premise, which shouldn't have to be defended, but nonetheless has to be defended, that the purpose of art is to communicate. And so far have we drifted from common sense that people feel that the purpose of art is just to put out whatever I want to put out and it doesn't matter whether you care about it or not. Now, you couldn't get away with that in any other field. If you were having conversations and you just walked up and said incomprehensible, insulting, gross, ugly things, people would sense that there was something off about what you were doing. And they would feel, well, you may have a right to say that, but not in my face. You know, if you're going to stand in front of me or be in relationship to me, then you have to make some effort to relate to my reality and offer me something I would like to know. But in art, even in public art, I mean, private galleries are yet another thing if people want to do whatever they want to do. But in public places, people somehow feel that they have the right to just stand up and uh, emote, either with complete triviality or sometimes grossly, and that somehow that uh, is justified because if it's their self-expression... What does it have to do with you? But we have this mystique that's been built up over a number of centuries about the artist and the artistic temperament and as we lose uh, our connection more and more with God and try to find something else to deify um, and artists have, some artists have really stepped happily into the void left by the absence of religion and just sort of claim a kind of superiority. Swamiji says, he said, many artists hope um, by confusion, to give the impression of being profound, maybe if, if you don't, they don 't know what they 're saying they 'll just put it out there enigmatically, and somebody else will figure it out and He talks a lot about um, later in the, these chapters that we are going to go discuss tonight, just about the need for clarity and how important it is, so he starts he starts at the beginning by just establishing the premise that there's a great value in thinking of art in terms of communicating. Now, it's not merely that it keeps from offending the general public, you know, because you can always just avoid things. You don't have to go to the park where the twisted piece of red metal is. You don't have to shop in the shopping center where the sewer pipes are deified. You don't have to go to any of those places. Although, it was just amazing. I was staying, we were in this hotel in Sacramento for the, the SRF trial, and we had this conference room that we often used. In the conference room, it was the, I can't remember what hotel it is, but it's right connected to the mall there. And right outside, it was another one of those things, like you look at it, I looked at it for days and days. And in the back of my mind, I always conceived of it as a construction site. (laughs) And then after a week or two, I realized that, again, it wasn't a construction site, it was art. It was some kind of a, a metal thing that looked more like a crane, and then just sort of twisted wires, and there was this very weird clock. There was just nothing aesthetically redeeming, and it was huge. It was huge at the end of this mall, and it totally dominated the windows. But the mind just couldn't even, I couldn't even see it as a finished object, just exactly what Swami described. And it's worse because it probably costs a lot of money. But nonetheless, that's the consciousness that somebody had. But Swamiji also talks here about one of the reasons that you want to think, as an artist, of art as communication, because it's often when we attempt to make ourselves understood by others, that we ourselves finally gain clarity. And that the, the vagueness that passes for inspiration doesn't really help us spiritually. The more advanced we get, the, more, uh, the fewer layers there are between ourselves and our perception of reality. And also the more um, self-enclosed we are, the, 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 the definition of subconsciousness is that we just live in our own reality we have no connection to the reality around us. It's epitomized by the dream state. We go into a dream and we imagine that all these other people are there with us, but really we're all by ourselves in it. Last night, this morning when the alarm went off for our meditation, I was in Russia traveling in this double wide uh, modular home which was the bus that had been arranged by the Italians for us to travel in Russia I and mean, it was just completely crazy and I had lost my shoes and I, mean, I was just totally engaged in this mythical experience and when the alarm went off I was utterly bewildered I didn't know where I was or what I was supposed to do but there was no communication or relationship going on in that dream It was just me fantasizing out of the substance of whatever stuff there is in me. There was nothing uplifting. There was nothing uh, life-changing for me or life-changing for anyone else. A great deal of art that you see. I remember Marguerite who brings various um, art uh, into the uh, store at East West, into the gallery back there. She hung a particular show and I sort of looked at it and she said, most people don't like this one. And then she just looked at me and said, this art is very subconscious. And I looked right at it, and it was very subconscious. It was a completely subjective picture of reality that just did not in any way say anything beyond the person who was saying it. You know, and it was low energy and it was confused, right? Now, the problem with creating art like that is really not the art. The problem is being like that, right? And that's where Swami talks about the fact that art is a means towards self-realization. Because if we recognize that what we're trying to to do with our artistic expression is expand, take, as he he describes it later in this book, um, uh, he said art always begins with somebody's personal experience. There's always something personal that happened that you perceived, you felt. I've been reading the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe, a very interesting woman to read about because she was so... Absolutely disciplined and committed to what she did. You know, she was a, a character. And, but that, that um, eccentricity was to a certain extent assumed, but it was primarily, simply, her way of devoting all her energy to her artistic pursuit. Just as a few sidelines, because it's so interesting. She was famous because she wore black all the time with a little bit of white now that's nothing, but at the time that she was doing it, it was very unusual. And her whole way of her whole style was just simply not in keeping with the times. But among the reasons that she wore black, besides the fact that it was simple, she didn't like to do anything that took time away from painting. And if all her clothes were black, that just solved that whole problem. But the other thing was, she said, color has such a profound effect on her, she couldn't imagine wearing it because that was her it was her whole life just like people hear music to her color was so alive and and uh, she said you know, to her every shade of color had made a specific statement had a specific meaning it wasn't a verbal meaning but it all had a meaning and she couldn't really how again how could she wear a color because it would be like saying something to her all the time and and her environment too she always made just white or gray just had to be nothing that stimulated her so she would be completely free just to create um, what, what she felt inside and she would have these experiences and people would ask her why do you paint those flowers so huge? I mean she did many kind of paintings but she's most famous for the huge flowers her answer was very simple that's how they look to me that was what she said. <laughs> they, they, didn't, they weren't huge to her that's just how she saw them they dominated her, her complete perception so she made a picture that was uh, consistent with what she had experienced. And people were always asking her to explain her paintings and so on, and she essentially said, you know, um, if I could explain it, I wouldn't have painted it. <laughs> it's like the experience I had, that's the experience I had. It's not a word experience, it's a painted experience. But she, the way Swami describes it, which is so interesting, is that all art, begins with some kind of a personal experience, a, a love for what you're doing, a perception of reality, an idea, an inspiration, whatever it is, you as an individual experience that. And, you know, this This book is about fine art, but it's very true that, and he makes the point too, that really anything you do, you can do artistically. And this is all, all true in the same sense, that you have some personal experience, and then both to develop it within yourself, to clarify and deepen that experience, and also to to serve others by sharing that experience is the process of art. But he said, if if we keep the experience only in the context of what we ourselves experienced, then people may admire it for a time, but it will never last. And it will never reach them because it has to become, as he puts it, impersonal. He said, "Not depersonal, because you can't remove from it what he calls simply the element of feeling, the thing that that gave it life and force in the in the first place. Like those pipes, they're, they're just they're they're not, they're not human. There's no human reality to those pipes. There's no human shared human experience in those pipes, and that's why they just sit there, and don't really make anything happen. But he was saying, for example, the Mona Lisa doesn't really." have a particular definable message but there's something um, extremely uh, compelling about whatever Leonardo da Vinci experienced when he was painting that picture and for those of you who may have seen it in person you you see many pictures of it but when you go and see it in person there is something just utterly compelling about it you don't even know who she is you don't know what it's about there's no intellectual content but he had some personal experience that he was then able to universalize sufficiently through that painting that all these years later people still come and still have profound experiences in front of it now, in order for an artist to be able to convey something that lasts that long they, they the, the artist himself or herself has to also escape from the merely personal circle in which the experience happened You know, some part of it will always remain just your own, but you have to find that part of it that everybody else also shares. And this is again where Swami um, talks about the, uh, the, the potential positive effect that art can have on others. Because if the artist himself or herself becomes extremely clear about the experience and then presents that clear enough, then others can also have that same clarity. And if the effort toward clarity is in an upward-moving direction, in other words, in an expansive direction, then everyone else in the same way is subtly uplifted. You know, this is what the masters devote their lives to. Now, this is not what many artists want to do. Many artists are in it entirely and only for what it means to them. Many people on the planet are on the planet entirely and only for what it means to them. You can be very, very creative, you can be very effective, you can be very rich, you can be very talented, and you can be very self-centered and have low consciousness. You can be very technically proficient, but not really have expanded consciousness. And Swami writes too, uh, uh, the art of it, even if you don't have technique, if it's very inspired, will still communicate. And he uses as an example the art that was done by the Christians in the catacombs. Uh, they weren't very good artists, some of them, but the inspiration they felt when they were trapped there and trying to express through art carries way over the technique and you can really just feel some experience that resonates also with us. So this is again where he, this whole first chapter that I'm still talking about is this concept of communication and why it's important. Now, The desire to communicate with others is also a sign of maturity, isn't it? Because uh, Swami, in Education for Life, so many of his books just sort of weave in and out and are so interesting together. In Education for Life, he was trying to find a way of explaining what is the purpose of, of educating children. I mean, what is the goal? And the idea that he presented is the goal of educating children is the same as the goal of life. And he called it true maturity. And then he went on to, def, to define true maturity as the ability to re, relate to realities other than your own. Isn't that interesting? It's just the expansion of your awareness. And so for an artist to become truly mature is the ability to relate to a reality other than the one that I, you know, this little experience that I had. Swami talks about W.H. Auden. he, You know, he's, he doesn't mince words. He just... Uh, says what he feels and he talks about I'm not familiar with Auden's poetry I think Swamiji actually studied with him so he had more involvement with him but he says he was too personal in his art in his poetry he wrote poetry that had meaning only to him and didn't become impersonal enough to draw out that part of the experience that would also be meaningful to others and maybe it was a a great expression of his own feeling but the fact that it doesn't Connect that it simply bewilders, as Swami describes it, said, relegates him to a a lesser stature as a poet. Now, you have to just accept that as the premise, because that is the premise of everything that Swami is going to say. Are there any more, any comments, or questions, or thoughts about that? Okay, nobody is arguing. The next chapter that Swami writes is what he calls The Need for the Arts, and this is extremely interesting. He, um, this is all about reason and feeling, and this gets to be, he he gets, um, when I first read this, it was, when I first read this manuscript, when Swami was writing it, I began to sort of see how, uh, how spiritually important it is to be artistic. I sort of got a, a little like, it's almost like it's a stage in uh, spiritual growth is the ability to be an artistic person. Because there's this... uh, The way Swami describes it is, um, art is one of the best ways to develop intuition. And intuition is a fundamental tool on the spiritual path. Because he said, art brings to perfect balance the two elements of reason and feeling. Isn't that interesting? And, and he really talks about the potential both for individuals involved and for individuals appreciating to sort of um, bridge. There's always this argument that goes on about feeling and, and reason and reason and feeling and which is the one that's needed and what should we do. And he also, just a moment, let me let me sort of get some clarity about what's here. Oh, yeah, He, he was talking, he makes this distinction which is really um, one of the confusions that people have And the distinction is between feeling and emotion. And uh, partly we have to just establish that understanding because the words in English don't have exact meaning. Probably in Sanskrit or languages more related to consciousness, there would be words that would be more exact and you wouldn't be so caught between the two words feeling and emotion. But one of the great confusions in ourselves when we try to be artistic is to try to understand this distinction so it's worth spending a few minutes understanding it. Um, because in yoga, when we talk about, in the, in the process of self-realization, when we talk about being even-minded and cheerful and we make such a, a, a strong statement about positive energy and we speak so uh, with such a disinclination toward negative attitudes and so on, sometimes people get a little mixed up as to what we're talking about. And it it can seem very dry or very incomprehensible. So what Swami is talking about is that reason is more than just sort of simple logic. And feeling is much more than just emotions. Feeling is the, the motivating aspect of our nature. As he says, You know, even the greatest discoveries, even the greatest descriptions of the most exciting aspects of human life and scientific discoveries or artistic achievements, they don't mean anything unless somebody has a feeling about it. As he puts it, he says, you know, you can describe the most miraculous things about science, but unless somebody gets excited about it, unless it inspires them some sense of awe or wonder or appreciation or a sense of beauty or harmony or majesty, the facts alone just sit there. They only become meaningful to us when they become meaningful to us through some feeling about things. Swami also writes earlier in this, when he's talking about art as communication, He also talks about the necessity to appreciate that when human beings do art, it's about human beings. He he uses the example of Frank Lloyd Wright, who had a, a, a principle of architecture that the house needed to relate to what the environment was asking for. Swami's remark was, you know, the natural environment doesn't ask for anything except to be left alone. You know, there's no natural site that's asking you to build a house there. He said, if you're building a house, you have to build the house according to what the human being is trying to experience through it. And it's it's said that many of Frank Lloyd Wright's houses are more beautiful from the outside than they are functional from the inside. And Swami uses the example too of his own house when we were building at Ananda village. Swamiji was inclined to build these domes, which he himself admitted the design that he was using was fairly ugly from the outside. It didn't really look as nice as he'd hoped it would look from the outside. But our houses were round, and he said our neighbors tended to build, sort of tucked back in the trees, and they built in a much more linear sense, and they accused us of not relating to the environment. But his answer was, well, I'm relating to the sky. He said, that's the part of the environment that, that to me is meaningful. He said, you're relating to the trees and to the forest, and that's perfectly reasonable. But each of us is starting with our personal experience and then putting our consciousness into what it is that's meaningful to us. Because we're moved by what we feel. It's not just a question of ideas. You can't just impersonally say, this is how a house has to be. But you have some feeling about that. Now, in that sense, feeling is extremely important to human life. And when we Swami laments in this chapter, talking about this sort of modernistic um, literary and dramatic inclination these days to to make these characters that are ice cold, you know, that have these these, uh, minds that are very efficient and they just do what they're supposed to do, whether we're talking about Wall Street bankers or paid assassins or CIA agents, or, you know, you can just go through all of these different novels and movies that you see and there's characters are... Uh, portrayed more and more like non-human they're dehumanized and the way they're dehumanized is they're not subject to their feelings they may, they may be sexual that's the only feeling that's left but they're definitely not um, personal in any way just very cold and very efficient and that's like somehow held up as some kind of an ideal that we're supposed to aspire to and our whole culture is just way moved over you, you just see it in the architecture and I'm not even talking about the hideous building sites that are put up as art. I'm just talking about architecture and for, for a person, for people like us, who have tried so hard to create all these years on a shoestring. You know, we, we patch together $1,000 and we patch together $2,000 and we're just so proud of ourselves and we you know put another brick in whatever it is that we're trying to do. And you, you go downtown and, I don't Palo Palo Alto's not so bad, but you go to San Francisco or many of these cities And you realize these people had all the money, all the money they needed, and they built that. (laughs) Just these these huge, square, flat, hard, uh, you know, just nothing of feeling in them. They have no heart. You know, huge, and they're so proud of them. And really, anybody looking at it knows that it's ugly. The, the only thing that it has is this uh, uh, overwhelming power. You know, this power over others, power over the environment. I mean, they, those things look like weapons. You know, they, don't, they don't look like anything that you want to cuddle up to at all or that would give you comfort in the night. You know, sometimes they look better in the dark when all you see is the light through the windows. But that's what people are doing because this is the direction that we're going. We're just, like, taking feeling and it's... I don't think that a lot of people like that stuff, but it just gets going, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And all that that represents is just the complete suppression of, of the feeling nature. You know, you can, you can endure it, as Swami says. It's time for art that isn't merely endured, but is cherished. And architecture, too, that isn't merely endured, but is loved. I must say, in this particular area, even things like the big medical center... I mean, they're not really hideous, they're actually rather nice. And the city of Mountain View, of all places, seems to have a real knack for making nice buildings down there. You know, they're still big in the basic thing that we're doing, but they're, they're pleasant, they're warm colors, they're curved lines. You can just feel that there's some feeling involved. Somebody was trying to do something that had a little bit of heart to it. and And how vitally important, I mean, anybody with sensitivity, as soon as you see that, you're just nurtured by it. It's so... Oh, it's such a relief to come into an environment that's like that. Now, art has the capacity to put that across. It has the capacity through architecture, through painting, through dance, through music, all of these different ways. Even through business, or I, I see Shanti, or through medicine, through healthcare, through anything, that puts across not only the logic of things, but also the feeling quality about them. Because... The feeling quality is required, or else we can't understand things. We don't understand the world around us when we only approach it with logic. We certainly don't understand each other when we only approach it with just logic. It, because, among other things, when you're just being logical, only part of you is functioning. And that rational part that just takes things apart can't put them back together. You have to be able to, you, you, you don't, you don't, mustn't. It's not enough to merely to know about people, you have to also care about them. You, know, you can't understand someone unless you care about them. Because until you open yourself up to that dimension, that, that never comes forward. And that's a great deal of what we see around us, is people are just being so rational, there, there's no feeling in it anymore. But you can't do art really well unless you have a feeling about it. In fact, you don't even want to if you don't have a feeling unless it 's just ego, but the more you try to get into making something really beautiful and communicate, part of what makes it communicate is when you really put feeling into it. All of us have had the experience of hearing a concert or or seeing a painting or whatever it might be uh, i 'm not, not that educated musically, but I, I, I realized i 've realized over time that if you're a sensitive person, you can really tell the difference. People can play... I remember some concert we went to, I don't remember any of the details, but there were two soloists. Both were technically proficient. One was totally boring, and the other was absolutely electrifying. And the electrifying one, it was just the very simple difference that that person put heart into it. And so when they were playing, because they put heart, heart was the universal connector. The other one was just playing his music, but there was no... Um, connecting, I mean, communication is, most of communication is putting out your feeling toward people, isn't it? When you see people lecturing or talking or in any situation when they're only interested in their own ideas, sometimes you watch people and their energy, comes out. Their energy. I, this is my joke, it comes out of their eyes and it goes right back in their brain. You know? it's like it just comes out and then they start looking at their own ideas again and then they put out more ideas and they start looking at them. <laughs> and really, I don't read auras, but it's the same as reading auras. And some other people, my first experience of a saint, I'll never forget him, I have no idea what his name was. It was when I was about 19 years old, maybe 20, living in Southern California, I was interested in the spiritual path. A very intellectually oriented person. I mean, I've always had a lot of feeling in my nature, but I was more uh, suppressed and more pushed toward intellectuality. And I was getting onto the path through the philosophy of Vedanta, expressed by Swami Vivekananda. Very brilliantly expressed. I mean, wonderfully expressed. He was Vivekananda, of course, was a great saint, so it wasn't just logic. But my interest was more on the logical side. There was a, the Vedanta Society um, disciples of the line of Ramakrishna and it was up in the hills of Hollywood and I lived in Santa Monica and I'd often go up there. And I went once and there was a Swami visiting from India. I don't know who he was, I've never seen him since. And he was giving the sermon or the service, whatever it was. And I had been to many services there and most of my relationship to it was how interesting the services, the sermons were. And I would think about the ideas and I would compare them to what I read. It was on that level. Well, this man started talking. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. He was making sense. He spoke English. But it just, I just couldn't put it together. And he was saying this and saying that. But the more he talked, the more wonderful I felt. And there was just some profound communication taking place through the medium of his words, but it was really the giving out of his heart and his spirit that was just reaching us. And we just became more and more blissful the more he talked, more and more totally confused as to what on earth he was talking about. I had no idea. And then I remember afterwards, he stood and shook people's hands, and it was the first time I'd looked into the eyes of a genuinely spiritual person. And his eyes, he looked right at me, but I could tell he was seeing something that I wasn't seeing. And it just, it's just vivid in my mind. Now that was communication. That was pure art. But it was all based on the feeling level. But not, not a nutty. He was, as Swami writes in here later, he was crystal clear about what he was giving us. It just didn't matter. The words that he hung it on didn't make any difference. Sometimes when I hear Swami speak, sometimes um, I have that same experience. Swami tends to be more, um, its content tends to hang together more than this man's did. But sometimes I'll just see Swami talking and sometimes he'll start speeding up And you you just feel that the words are just the medium for the vibrations. And that the words are just entirely secondary. In a sense, just like a painting. Like perhaps an abstract painting. That just, there's some experience. George O'Keefe did a number of paintings that were considered abstract. But they weren't abstract to her. She'd had some experience. And she, she said that she would see these shapes in her mind. And when she would see them, they would just communicate all this reality to her that she felt was very important and then she'd put it out onto pieces of canvas. And she was she was happy that people understood but she was mostly just and, and her effort that's why she was such a good artist was to just get more and more exact. She'd often paint the same thing over and over and over until she really felt that she'd really gotten it. And then when she finally got it crystal clear and she didn't have to paint it anymore. You know, it was just perfect. And then people would see it and they would really get something from it in exactly that way. And what they would get that motivates them and moves them is this feeling level. Now, we're in an art emergency in the in our country at this time. Really. Because we're in a, a feeling emergency. But But what we have is that we have a great deal of emotion happening right now. And one of the qualities that Swami describes to describe emotion is that emotion tends to narrow your focus of reality rather than to expand it. So it's not about the intensity of it. It's about whether it, it contracts or expands. And he talks about feelings like anger and jealousy and fear and feelings like that, that that tend, instead of putting you into a greater touch with reality, tend to make your reality smaller. And and how you just can't understand Uh, if you if just use it a very you think in very simple terms, the easiest way to understand what he's saying about art is just think as if it was straight communication with individuals. If if you're angry at someone, or they're angry at you, how many times have people been angry and put great anger out towards you and they feel in their anger that they're really saying something that's profound and true? But you're standing there perfectly aware that because of their anger they're really not seeing what's happening at all. Or their defensiveness, or their insecurity, whatever it might be. That They may have tremendous energy behind it. They may even express what they are experiencing with crystal clarity. But that doesn't mean that in any way it it relates to a larger reality. And Swamiji talks about a great deal of art nowadays is just based on putting out emotions with a great deal of force. And because we've lost a sense of direction—not merely in art, but just in a total sense—people will look at something, and it will be very, very powerful. It, it will put across exactly what the person wanted to put across, but it won't um, expand consciousness. In fact, he describes how such things can even really pull people down. He he remembers the example of Billy Billy Sunday recording this, uh, Billy Holiday, I think it was recording the song "Gloomy Sunday," right? And it was during the Depression that she recorded it, and she recorded it so effectively that people actually committed suicide from hearing that song. And so they actually took it off the radio because she had tuned in to the emotion of despair. And and her life was difficult, and she had the capacity to channel it extremely well, and she channeled such a pure energy of despair that other people completely caught it. And it made them feel so hopeless that people killed themselves. He also tells the story in here about this woman, I think her name was Angie Dickinson. It's a a very chilling story. I don't remember which chapter it's in. But she had a, you know, so many people have near-death experiences and they go to really happy places. Well, she had a near-death experience and she went to hell. And uh, she talked about the fact, she committed suicide unsuccessfully, but she, she took her own life. She talked about how She was was a great fan of of what she called heavy metal music. She used to listen to it a lot. And she she describes in her book, which is named in here, it's an interesting book to read. It's a very interesting book to read. She talked about how she used to love to go to those, those concerts and she used to really like that music. And she was having difficulties in her life and getting more and more discouraged. And this thought began to grow in her mind that she would take her life by suicide. And she... Um, was sort of teetering on the edge and didn't quite know whether to do it and she went home and she lay down on the couch and she put on one of her favorite songs of that type and later she actually realized that that song persuaded her to commit suicide because it was so emotional and the emotion was so contractive and the emotion was so depressing that it, it just took away from her the last little bit of hope she had and she uh, attempted to take her life and then when she when she went to the other side she didn't go into some expanded place. She went to the place where people with no hope go. Because if you have no hope and no belief in an expanded reality, you don't get that faith just by uh, discarding your body. You just have what you are, only worse. And, and she said, she went to this very dark place where everyone was, was self-enclosed, is how she put it. She said people were just looking into themselves, And they didn't seem conscious of the fact that anyone was around them, and she could even, as she she could sense that there were edges to this darkness, and that right at the edge of the darkness there were beings of light, but but the the people were there, just contracted like this, and she was aware. This is how she put it: that the vibration of that place was the same as the vibration of the music she had been listening to. I mean, it's it's really a chilling picture that she describes. She, fortunately, had enough of a a contrary kind of energy that she sort of burst out of there. She also said that she had the feeling that many people in that place had been there a really long time. You know, like a really long time. She was talking about the nature of their clothes, or just there was some sense that people who got into that space stayed there a really long time. Now... This is what's going on around us all the time, is these kinds of energy. and I mean, it's chilling, it really is. Now, it's not that you can't present those kinds of emotions, because those kinds of emotions are part of life. All of us go through them. But the point is, we have to help through art and everything that we do. As Swami describes it, he said, if you want to present that kind of darkness, the best way to present it is in contrast to the uplifting uh, uh, alternative to it. And then what you help people to do is, yes, you can maybe reach them through that aspect of it, but then you go somewhere, you take them somewhere with it. I used to—I've joked a lot about Barbara Streisand I, because I lived at Ananda. We were so isolated for so long. I didn't hear Barbara Streisand for many, many, many years. Now, even at Ananda Village, we're not as isolated as we were when I first was there. We had no electricity, no television, no radio, nothing. And so many years after she was a very famous. Somebody took me to see one of her movies. And she's, you know, at that time, she was at the peak of her game. I don't know if she's still popular very much or not, but um, she, and she was very good. You know, she just, whatever she set out to do, she really did it well. But I watched it, and the music that she sang, she just committed herself to it completely. It sort of, it went right into your heart. It pulled you outside yourself. It didn't take you into yourself. It pulled you outside yourself with longing, for a perfect romance, or for a wonderful home, or for some something that you didn't have. It was just like this feeling of, oh, and she did it so effectively. And she just dragged, she got into your heart, she grabbed a hold of it, she dragged it out and then she dropped it. Because it was all emotion. There was no balancing clarity. That yes, you know, all of these things happen and then you lift them up toward the spirit. Then you lift them up toward the light. Yes, tragedy happens, but then it's purified by the change that you go through. All of these different things that that great artists like Shakespeare and others, you know, really, or even all the artists, I mean, how many incredible paintings are there of Jesus hanging on a cross? You know, just endless paintings. And some of them are awful, but others of them... it's just just transforming because you see that but even if it's the crucifixion you sense behind it the, the resurrection you know the worst tragedy the darkest thing you sense behind it this light that can come up behind it and that's the reason and the feeling just coming right into balance not as emotion but as that which gives us clarity because perfectly calm feeling as Swami writes it is intuition and intuition is the direct knowing that's why Swami even says this book. It came to him all of a sudden, intuitively. Uh, Albert Einstein says that too, the what he the revelation he had about the nature of the universe. He didn't get to that methodically. He just knew it all at once. And then he said it took him ten years to explain it so that somebody else could understand it. But he knew it first. And so by the with the process of our even ourselves, either to appreciate or to express ourselves artistically, we begin to balance those very a reality is within ourselves because to understand clearly enough and to communicate clearly enough requires that we ourselves put those two elements together and once you begin to put those two elements together you begin to raise your consciousness and that's what it is. Art as a guide to self-realization, that's what we're all trying to do and we have all this human energy we have to use so do we use it to merely bind ourselves further or do we use it to ultimately free us from all the bondage of this world? I had one question during the break, which my answer to it was, that was what I was about to talk about, and I can't remember what it was. What was it? What did we say, Bill? What would we just say? Your question was... Oh, and the subjective, the subjective element in it, that's right. And the art. And the second was... Okay, before I go into that, are there any other questions that need to be answered? Yes, Stephanie? Well.
1: I don't know how much these are questions. Well, the first one, I just had this thing which helped me uh, when you said it. uh, You were talking about, giving an example about people writing novels about these unfeeling characters. You know, you give the example of the CIA agent, and I was remembering that uh, great Walter Matthewl movie, Hopscotch, and he played a CIA agent, but uh, he was not a cold, unfeeling person, and he, the upshot was that he conflicted with his superiors because they wanted him to do everything by the book but he really knew his job he was really good and, but it wasn't by doing it by the book
0: he was an and artist he had made the perfect balance between science and art
1: no it's true it's actually yeah. exactly yeah. true,
0: plus he's, all all true. All plus he's a consummate actor Walter Matthau in the script if you haven't seen that have it's called he's an artist it's he called Hopscotch. A,
1: but yeah, but his think. character was an artist and he really knew the art of spot. No, that's and true. I it. accept it. <laughs> and The other thing I was thinking um, about the artist and the artist's audience, it's it's like, you can't, tol- I mean, you can blame the artist for putting out this meaningless, horrible art, but you got to also blame, you know, we're not going to talk about blame, but um, the people who accept it and who display it and who consider it art. And I don't think the artists... The artist couldn't get away with too much without...
0: Well, these the people artists. are... You know, this is the planet we're on. You know, We had our reasons for coming here. And it's a peculiar planet for people of refinement. It's a very peculiar <laughs> planet. No, really. Someone was talking about some preview to a movie he saw. And I mean, this was like 10 years ago, so I'm sure it was Small Potatoes and it was... You know, the movie was about some man going around with a shotgun and shooting people and then dismembering them and, you know, how they make the previews as horrible as possible. It was just absolutely unspeakable. And he said, imagine a planet on which they make movies like that, he said, and we're living on it. You know, so it's, there's just this huge divergence of consciousness going on. And then it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the demise of a yuga And and during the time when a yuga is um, ending, a great many things have to be destroyed. So all those souls who are really good at destroying, this is their chance and they get to come. So they get to come and be on planet Earth and rip it to pieces. And at the same time, the change of the yuga, if we're going up, which we are now, thank God. I mean, I guess, who cares? But, I mean, sometimes it would be better. If we were going down, you see, if we were going down... We could just be of like-minded people and we could just go away. The reason that we have to live and work so hard in the midst of this is because the yuga is going up and so we have to help it. If it were going down, we would just say, it doesn't matter, we get to go be like the Desert Fathers. That's how they got to just be out there. Is because there was no point. There was absolutely no point in trying to work with society. If you were in spiritual, you just separated yourself from society. But we're in this time where society itself is coming up. So we have to play this... Thing, where we have to live in, on a planet and be active and be engaged in it and try to influence it and yeah, it's strange Bill's question was related to that because his question was yes, but if you put something out it's not only you're putting it out people are accepting it it was the same question and uh, part of it is what the artist puts out and it's the second half of it is what people see in it you know, pardon me? marketing <laughs> yes <laughs> and some of it is marketing though it's Swamiji. Swamiji writes about that where the people are they, he tells several jokes in here and one of them is, this is as he puts it two rustics in an art museum and one looking at some hideous thing and someone one said to the other why would they hang something like that in here and the other man says probably because they couldn't find the artist to hang him <laughs> Which sort of sums it up. And there's a great deal of... Swami actually quotes... He he quotes some art critic about during this period the tension between the... I can't even say it. Just some incredible, long, absurd analysis of something that was a genuine quote from some art review. of just it's, It's all a game, as he puts it. Just people just playing this. But the other question was, if people draw something from what you've done, it's not necessarily you who've put it in there. It's that people are also subjective in their experiences. And you may have had one intention, somebody draws something else from it. People can even be inspired by bad art if they're in the mood to be inspired. He tells the story of a, a woman, that was actually Tara Mata, who was very sensitive musically and they went to Ye- Yellowstone or somewhere like that. And there was a concert of a violinist who played horribly. But she was just feeling such bliss from herself that she thought the music was beautiful. And she said afterwards, what beautiful music. And they said he couldn't even play in tune. But to her it was beautiful because everything was beautiful. It didn't make any difference at that point. So even bad art can be received in a positive way if you're inclined that way. But then Swami goes on to say, yes, there is that subjective element. But then there are simple universal realities that are simple truths. That, And he, as he puts it, he says, we were put on this planet to find out what those universal truths are, to find out the secret of happiness, to find out the path to self-realization. And we learn slowly, which is why we spend a lot of time on on this planet or planets like it. We just keep coming back and coming back because we keep testing out other, other ways of being happy other than divine attunement. And we just keep trying to work it. We see if being a furious, enraged, outrageous artist who makes you know big statements of this and that. Let's see if it makes me happy. And having people hate my art and I think that that's perfect because I provoked a reaction. You know, just all these different things that people do and it's fine. You just do it. Swami remarked about Michael Jackson once. Uh, actually, he also remarked about Roger Hodgson, who was the leader of the band Super Tramp, which was very popular for a period of time. The band then broke up, but Roger was the leader of that, and he was also for a time part of Ananda and a disciple of Master. And Swamiji said, of course, he didn't like Roger's music at all, but he had to admit that he did it extremely well. You know, what he, what he was setting out to do, he did it extremely well. And he was capturing a certain vibration that at that time was world accepted. He was just, his album for a while was number one, you know, in many countries of the world. It was so interesting. Swamiji, at first, not quite understanding, thought he would help him a little, because Roger sang in a rather nasal way. Swami thought he would help him with voice placement. And Roger had to explain that, no, that was exactly the tone that he needed, you know, (laughs) that another tone would not work for him. And then some of his lyrics were just a little, you know, confusing. And so Swami was, like, going to help him a little bit to make his, his meaning a little clearer, and Roger had to explain, no, the audience I'm reaching, that's not what they want. They want it to be a little obscure and a little hidden like that. And, and Roger just instinctively knew uh, what he was born to do and what he was trying to do, and Swamiji quickly realized he wasn't, he had no intention except just trying to help him. He'd never really talked to someone who put out that kind of music. But he saw that there was a great deal, he had a great deal of respect for Roger, because Roger was following his own intuition, he was doing it exactly right. And in that field, his music was much, it it, it was much more uplifted. It wasn't ugly, it was just different, you know, it wasn't Swami's music, but it it was good for what it was trying to do. Michael Jackson is another example. You know, Michael's in in ill repute right now, but... um, uh, he was very popular for a while. I mean, he just hit it. He hit exactly what people wanted and did it with tremendous energy. Did it take anybody where they really wanted to go? Now that's another question. I mean, wanted to go, really wanted to go. And Swami so talks a lot in this chapter when he starts talking about universal values. He said, people may think they enjoy all this overstimulation. They may think that they enjoy this nervous, tense, angry energy. Swami so just speaks of the music of our time. is just uh, just the signaling, the, just the complete destruction of our society. And more than signaling it, it's actually, it's actually helping to create it. Because it's just creating this dissonance in people. I was parked at a, a, a red light, and somebody, I don't know exactly where they were, with one of those horrible big systems came. And whatever they were playing, it wasn't quite loud enough to assault my ears but it actually assaulted my physical body. And I, I was in pain. I could just feel it hurting my body as the sound waves went through me. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm suffering here for one minute. Somebody's in their car driving around like that. It doesn't make you nice at the end of it. You know, it just doesn't because you're emphasizing ego and you're emphasizing all this. And, and I read an interesting article in a newspaper about The problem, and and he he was talking about how, I can't remember what brought it on, but it talked about how Satan wins a little step at a time. He was actually talking about Satan, I think, the devil, some devilish plot, that you you don't bring society down like suddenly, but you bring it down inch by inch. And he, he was talking about in that article about how once you start going at a certain speed, it no longer feels fast to you. And for you to get the same sort of thrill, you have to go faster. Once you reach a certain level of sort of tension and excitement, it becomes normal. And for you to have any kind of a thrill, you have to push it farther. And that's exactly what you see in the movies, and in the, especially in the so-called music. You know, it just keeps getting harder and harder and uglier and uglier. I was in a a 7-Eleven on the highway, and I just went in to get some water, and I had to just walk right out. There was this something playing, and it was extremely explicit sexual lyrics. But not, you know, not any kind of sexuality that had anything to do with anything you wanted to have anything to do with. Just egoic and harsh and, and it was just, I could not stay in there. I just walked in and walked out. And, and because I don't live with it. But the people, there were people working in there. And they were just listening to it. it and so what it does is it just coarsens and coarsens and coarsens and coarsens people's consciousness. And so they don't even know it. They actually think they like it. Yes.
1: I heard some interesting research that um, I don't know all the details, but they were muscle-testing people who were watching violence and also listening to heavy Uh metal music. And at first, it would make, of course, it would make people weaker. But over a period of time and exposure, the opposite began to happen. Heavens. Where. You know, what would be considered healthy made them weak and what oh, was violent
0: made them strong. Oh, God. Now that is a chilling piece of information. Oh,
1: Lordy. Why would they
0: want it? You know, the, a, a similar thing I heard was about uh, certain ro- rock and roll, which, I, you know, rock and roll sounds like such a quaint word now, <laughs> but it's the only word that I know. Rock and roll. <laughs> um, how certain of those kinds of rhythms, talking about teenagers, about how teenage kids say they can't do their homework without the music on, that actually they become physiologically addicted to it, that their systems change. I, I read about that, that their heart, their hearts change, their breathing changes, and they really do need the music. Uh, there's a, a, a wonderful story. I can't remember the name of the book. Somebody here may remember it. It's about a, 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 a French man who lost his sight suddenly when he was eight years old. He had an accident and he went blind. And the story is about how he was in the French resistance. Because he was blind, he could sense whether people were lying or not. And they, they used him in the resistance to, to tell who was a spy and who wasn't. He was very useful. But uh, let's see now. He, he Several things are remarkable about his story. Um, the whole story, is, not all of it is interesting, as interesting as just the section where he loses his sight and talks about it. Because he was eight years old, he lost it suddenly, but when he lost his sight, he discovered he could still see because he could see internally. And he could feel the vibrations of things so clearly that he could still see. But he also found, interestingly, that if he became angry or upset, he couldn't see anymore. I mean, he could see the shapes of trees and he could know where objects were he could just move through the world as if he weren't blind but he wasn't seeing because he knew the difference but he could just feel the energy fields but the point that I wanted to make is that he remarked of course when he lost his sight all his other senses became extraordinarily heightened especially his sense of sound and he became aware he became aware that the human being is made of sound vibrations See, one of the reasons that music has such a profound effect on us is that the ohm vibration is the substance of creation. It's, it's not a secondary experience. Sound is a direct experience. And uh, he, he, he became so aware of the effect of sound that he just didn't understand how people, for example, could like have a radio playing in the background. Because it would, the sound waves would assault him because and he knew it was happening for everybody else. They just had become inured to it, and so all the noise that we surround ourselves is always—it's mutating our very physical body, because we are made out of sound. And Master spoke of music. He said, "Music is a divine art given not for pleasure but for God realization." And uh, that quote has been changed to say not only for pleasure, but the original quote was not for pleasure but for divine realization. Because the right kind of music attunes you. You know, I, of course, am well known for being fanatical about this, but I am fanatical about it. Because it hurts. And it hurts to see what's happening. I know we can't always change everything, but and sometimes we just have to be tolerant, but at the same time, it's exceedingly real. Because this is how we are made. And what we expose ourselves to and what we channel, it's, it's, it's very, very important how we relate to it. You know, people in, that I love like music that I can't stand. So, and I've been known to listen to country music on the radio. <laughs> you know, I just everybody has their moments. <laughs> but nonetheless, here you have it. It is a truth. Any comments, or questions, or thoughts?
2: I just find that rap music is just absolutely horrifying, and it's just so loud and it's so invasive, and it, and it does but I didn't ever really thought about it actually physically hurting, but it does. We have neighbors that live across the street from us and um, they listen to rap music so loud mm-hmm. that we've had to call the police several times. Mm-hmm. So in the interim before like the police show up, I remember one day I, 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 I couldn't stand it. It was like all day long. I finally broke it and I went out there and they were like, they have it in the house going and they have it in their cars going.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And you know, the car speakers have like, years ago, blown out from this, so it was just like
0: uh-huh.
2: And so I went like this, like, you know, because it was, like, painful. And um, and they just turned everything up and flipped me off, you know. Oh. And it was just like I got, I, got, I became afraid when yeah. the police came. And then the interesting thing was they had all scurried in the house at that point. And it took the police, two police officers, about 20 minutes for them to finally get the attention. Hmm. <laughs> people wow. <laughs> the music was so uh, pounding
0: on the door. Wow. That's really something. It's, it's painful. The, uh, let's see, there... Um, when we first moved into our apartment complex, which is our community, we shared it with people who had been living there for a long time and it was not a very high consciousness place. The police regularly came out several times a week um, you know, our moving in was a big boost to the neighborhood. It was it was a, tran- a transient and not a very good place. And David and I at that time, for those of you who know the community, which is mostly, we were living over in Building 2 in a one-bedroom apartment, so we were adjacent to the driveway that's back there. One Saturday morning at 7, somebody went out there to work on their car, and they turned on their radio really loud, just right there, you know, like they were feet from our bedroom window. And... Uh, I said to David, you know, and like this person will wonder why the world doesn't treat him right. And he we was totally unconscious. He wanted to listen to the radio. He wanted to work on his car, so he we just went out and turned it on. And just without any, and it was like, naturally, of course, he listened to music that reinforced his, his egoic separation from the planet be, because it was just all of a piece. And there, was, and there was no way to just go outside and say, it's Saturday morning It's seven o'clock. Just the same thing. It's like, it's all consistent. And, and yet, <clears throat> we all know that consciousness can be transformed. But that's what Swami he uses the phrase, there's such a thing as induced negativity. It's a very interesting phrase, which is, you, you if you may not be negative, meaning negative energy, negative direction. And that's why you may not be inclined when you start, but gradually it becomes normal to you. Palo Alto seems normal to me. When I first came from Ananda Village, I was clear enough to know that it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) wasn't. Yes, Chante.
2: (laughs) Asha, before you move on, I want to ask you to to say one more time because it's really important to me just in terms of some personal experiences in Mm -hmm. the last five years with music. I mean, also becoming intolerant of most music. I mean, I embarrass people now because I very nicely ask, like in a restaurant, I'll ask people to turn the music down or just tell them I'll have to leave otherwise. I mean, I can't, yeah.
0: You and me both, honey.
2: Yeah.